Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word, for the message that you have for us, and for the blessing that you give us to be able to worship you with our hearts, with our minds, and with our lives. Amen. I've been thinking a lot about last Sunday's sermon. It's funny how this happens sometimes for me, where almost as soon as our worship service is over, I start thinking back on the sermon. And sometimes I have a nagging feeling that something was missing, that I was missing something, or, or like I've left something a little bit unsaid. And I spent a couple of days puzzled by this until, until I spent some time sitting with our text for this Sunday. Unintentionally, it seems that this Sunday, this, this morning's sermon is almost a part two, taking a different perspective from last Sunday. But really, though, I think it's, it's actually a part one, a prequel, if you will. Last Sunday, using Psalm 19 as our guide, I shared three ways that we can deliberately live in the midst of uncertainty through worship, even taking the trees and all of creation as our guide, worshiping God like the whole of nature worships God. The second one was through scripture, learning about God and allowing God to speak to us through scripture and through God's commandments. And then through prayer, through confession, and through receiving God's graces in prayer. These three ingredients, worship, scripture, and prayer, they guide us in all times, but particularly in the uncertain times. So in this morning's text from Exodus, we're stepping into what can only be described as a time of uncertainty. Moses returns to the Israelites only to find that they've gone completely off the rails. Earlier in Exodus, as Walt said, Moses is receiving instructions from God. And like he said, a lot of instructions. And the Israelites have only recently been rescued by God from captivity in Egypt. And they're now beginning to form their new identity as God's chosen people. And early in that time, Moses is set apart as their leader. And these others are called to be priests among them. And they're all summoned, the leaders, the priests, and Moses, to the top of a mountain to hear instructions. Instructions from God. Among the instructions that Moses and the priests hear on the mountain are the Ten Commandments. And Moses relays the Ten Commandments to the Israelites verbally, initially. He tells them what God is asking them to do. And they respond all with one voice saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses and the priests, they go back up to the mountain and they see God again. And God says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses goes on up the mountain and he sends the priests back down to watch over the Israelites. In Exodus chapters 25 through 31, so we were hearing from chapter 32, in chapters 25 through 31, these are seven long, dense chapters. And in these chapters, God gives instructions to Moses as to how the people can glorify God. God gives 
extremely detailed instructions for the construction of uh, instructions for the construction of altars, breastplates, vestments. God describes worship practices in great detail and gives instructions as to how they should be conducted and who should lead them. For seven chapters, God gives hundreds and hundreds of ways that the Israelites will be able to honor God and bring glory to the God who freed them from captivity. Central to all of these instructions are the Ten Commandments. And the last thing that God does after giving all the other instructions is to provide Moses with two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. In the Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments given to Moses throughout the Bible. Now, there's some disagreement as to this specific number, but regardless of what the number is exactly, it's, com it's completely clear that the volume is substantial. It's a huge number. And while the Ten Commandments are not considered as a whole to be more important than other instructions, they they do seem set apart, obviously, right? Because God writes them on the tablets and gives them to Moses to give to the people. Additionally, the first two of the Ten Commandments are definitely given significant weight by God when God declares to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God makes it clear to Moses that above all other things, God demands that God's people not bow to any other gods or idols. In case this wasn't clear, God later again says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, You have seen for yourselves that I spoke with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. And after the people hear these instructions, they say, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And now God has placed these commandments, starting with these two, on stone tablets for Moses to bring to the people. Moses has been gone for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. The Israelites have been following Moses and have listened to him. But what were they thinking during those 40 days and 40 nights? Were they wondering whether he was ever coming back? Were they wondering about this God who had taken them out of the misery they knew and put them into a land of mystery they didn't know? Were they more fearful? The people got anxious. They didn't know what to expect, and they were fearful in the uncertainty. You know, that was the one thing they had while they were slaves in Egypt. They knew what to expect. And they knew what was expected of them. Fear overtakes us when we don't know what is next. And fear overtook the Israelites. They went to Aaron, to Moses' brother, and asked him to make gods for them. They say, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Give us something. We want some stability. 
Give us something we can see and something we can worship. Because they were in the midst of deep uncertainty and they go to Aaron and they say, we want something certain. We want something we can see. We want normal back again. So Aaron tries to give it to them. He has them gather all their gold jewelry. And this is such an interesting piece of the text, right? Because it seems odd that he would have them grab all their jewelry and all the gold that they had. Because remember, they were slaves. They were slaves who had nothing, who were freed by God. But in Exodus 3, there's something really cool that happens. This gold that they have, this gold had all been given to them as they left Egypt. In Exodus 3, as God is preparing to set the Israelites free from captivity, God tells Moses, when you go, when you leave, you will not be empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman living in the neighbor's house for jewelry of silver and of gold. And in Exodus 12, the Israelites had done as Moses had told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. So now Aaron takes this gold, the gold that God instructed the people to bring with them out of Egypt, this gold that only came to the people because of God. And Aaron melts it down and fashions it into a golden calf to give to the Israelites, to give them something they can see and worship. And this is exactly what they do. The people then exclaim, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron announces a festival. This is what they need. They need a party, right? They're, they're stressed. They're upset. They've been waiting. They've been longing to get back to normal. And he throws a party. They rose early the next day, our text says, and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. When we read this in our, in our text, it sounds so, I don't know, sterile, right? They ate and they drank and they rose up to revel. But this was a party, a party of all parties. Within moments of Aaron providing the golden calf, the people are filled with this sense of euphoric satisfaction. Their worries and their anxieties and the uncertainty, they all seem to fade away because they have what they wanted. The reveling is short-lived. They've gotten God's attention and God is enraged. It's hard not to understand God's anger, right? God has delivered these people from captivity only to have them break the first two commandments. They have turned from God and worshiped other gods in the form of this golden calf, an idol. God is ready to utterly destroy the Israelites. God is ready to start over completely. God tells Moses that Moses will be given a new nation and a new people so that they will be a great nation. How tempting this may have been for Moses. But instead of giving into that temptation, Moses argues with God and says, turn from your fierce wrath. Turn away from your wrath. 
And God spares the Israelites and leaves Moses to pick up the mess. And so Moses, with the two tablets in hand, goes down from the mountain, the mountain where he had been with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes down, he sees this revelry, this bacchanal. He sees the people. Then he sees the golden calf. And he heard the sounds and saw the sights. And our text says that Moses' anger burned hot and he destroyed the tablets. And then he takes the golden calf and he burns it, grinds it into a powder, mixes it with water and makes the Israelites drink it. This is savage imagery to me, right? I'll mention that normally that part of the text is not part of the lectionary for today. But I think that image is so powerful. And Moses and God, they have the same reaction, right? The same reaction of anger to this disobedience. But Moses responds to the anger in these two important ways. First, he actually stands up to God. God has made clear to Moses that God is in charge and that God is powerful and worthy of fear. But Moses' love for the Israelites is so strong that he pushes back against God and he risks his own life for his people. Second, Moses takes his anger out on the idol. He doesn't hide or ignore his anger. He's authentic about it. But because his love for God's people at this moment is far greater than his anger, and because Moses desires that God's people would return to their commitment to following God's instructions, Moses destroys the idol completely. Moses has come such a long way with God's people from captivity in Egypt and then the long journey to this place. It's been hard, and it must have been lonely for Moses leading this misfit gathering of God's chosen people. But Moses persisted. And like all the uncertainty and anxiety and unknown that caused the Israelites to go to Aaron and ask Aaron for gods to worship, I can imagine that Moses must have been feeling similar, similar stress and anxiety and worry. So in this time away, Moses was being given instruction after instruction from God. Moses was alone at times hearing God's voice and seeing God. Moses was confident in this call, but he had to have been feeling much of the same emotion that the Israelites were feeling. But the difference between Moses and the Israelites is that Moses remains faithful and focused on the promises that God had been making to God's people for generations. And when God is about to act in anger, Moses says to God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. You see, Moses, even in the mess before him, even when the people he is leading have gone astray, even when he seems to have lost complete control, and even when God seems to have given up, even then, Moses is reminded of God's promises. And Moses 
trust God. Like the Israelites and like Moses, we're challenged in our lives when we feel uncertain. We're challenged when we cannot see God and when we cry out in desperation, where is God? Give us gods we can worship because we cannot see God. When we look at the devastation throughout our country from fires and storms, we ask, where is God? When an election and vitriol dominate the news with hatred and violence, where is God? When we hear about violence in the streets and read about struggles for justice, where is God? When people we love are far away, when people we care about are sick and facing challenges, when we receive a diagnosis, where has Moses gone? Is he coming back? When worry overwhelms us, when we grow weary and we beg, come, make gods for us. When the difficulties come and uncertainty becomes impossible to ignore, we ask the question, where is God? Like Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, we have a choice as to how we respond in this anxiety. Theologian Walter Brueggemann writes about the golden calf, that the great sin is to substitute, and listen to this, this is key, an available produced God for the sovereign one who is not immediately available and who is not made with human hands. The great sin is to substitute an available produced God the temptation when the world or your life seems out of control and when God seems distant and when you feel uncertain and when you feel anxious, the temptation, our temptation, is to fashion some sort of idol that we can control that will satisfy the need for immediate relief and for a presence that looks like God. Of course, you're not likely to seek certainty and control by melting down all your gold and fashioning a calf to worship. But the golden calf, the thing we make, the substitute for God that we try to create, it can take many shapes and forms. We shape our golden calves in a variety of ways. One way is to reject God completely by choosing to abandon the church and faith. When God stops feeling present, those who choose the idol of atheism walk away from their belief and attempt to forget even their memory of their belief. On the other end is, is another golden calf of religious extremism. Rather than acknowledging the feeling of being separated from God or being confused about where God is, those who worship the false idol of religious extremism try and squelch any questioning or doubting, and instead, in the midst of uncertainty and anxiety, place a smile on their face and utter platitudes of false assurances that God does everything for a reason or God never gives us anything that we can't handle. These, these are false idols because they replace the messy reality of the difficult walk with God with a fabricated, idyllic optimism like the reveling of the Israelites in front of the golden calf. And this only leads to disappointment. 
these are just examples. There are other examples, right? There are other examples of these things that we create to take and try to substitute that uncertainty, uncertainty, try to substitute that anxiety. These are the, the things that we do, the things that we do in our lives to create a substitute for our reliance upon God. Throughout history and, and even today, we have examples of people who, like Moses, though, have taken a different path, have chosen a greater challenge of following God and waiting for God, even in the midst of uncertainty and even when God doesn't seem present. The disciples, the earliest followers of Jesus, who followed this mysterious rabbi named Jesus, even to the cross, they took the difficult road of waiting for God. Paul and the earliest Christians suffered the greatest costs, including prison and death for their faith and for following God. When, when faced with uncertainty, these, these earliest followers chose to wait on God. And waiting on God, though, it doesn't always mean that the uncertainty will disappear. Waiting on God sometimes means that instead of the instant gratification of the golden calf, you may have to wait and sit with the uncertainty. You know, Moses would never set foot in the promised land. And yet his actions and his waiting on God led the Israelites into that land flowing with milk and honey, even when their own faith could not lead them to do the right things. St. Teresa of Calcutta, who most of us know more familiar, familiarly as Mother Teresa, she shared toward the end of her life that for more than 50 years of her adult life, she experienced what St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul, where she did not feel God's presence. 50 years of her adult life. Mother Teresa wrote, she said, I am told God lives in me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. This is Mother Teresa. Even in the midst of this dark night of the soul, this time of uncertainty, this anxiety, Mother Teresa arose every morning and was the first to pray and spent all of her day serving the poor in the name of Christ. The risk it took for Moses to walk forward and lead the people out of Egypt and into uncertainty, and the risk that Mother Teresa took to live her life of service to God's people in the midst of her own darkness, this is the risk of hope, the risk of, of faith, the risk of following God even in the midst of challenges and uncertainty. So we come back to part two, to Psalm 19, and the nagging that I had last week. You see, these gifts of worship, of scripture, and of prayer in Psalm 19, they're, they're answering the question that I've sat with this whole week. How do we replace our false idols with God? How do we take the risk of not choosing the comfortable, the immediate, the easy, the warm, and instead choose to follow God, even in the midst of uncertainty. Sometimes part two comes before part one, right? 
And it's sort of true in life. We practice for the game. We do the things we know we have to do so that when the game comes, we're ready. We, we prepare for trips. We pack our bags. We plan for storms. And so maybe when, when we take this risk, this risk of choosing God, this risk of choosing God, this risk of, of going back to that psalm, to Psalm 19, and looking at the ways that we can choose God. Maybe when we take that risk, we discover that God is in the midst of all of it, all of that uncertainty. This, my friends, is, this is the journey. It's not easy, but it's the journey to which we are called. And it's the journey on which we have others and the journey on which we will encounter our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.